Good day. Welcome to your favorite place, the Trendy Place. And this is the Trend Podcast with Justin A. Williams. And I am here to bring you awesome content from all across the spectrum that is meant to inform, excite, and most of all, keep you trendy. If you like a podcast where the unexpected is to be expected, then this is the podcast for you. We have a great show for you today. Thank you for joining us. We are better when we trend together. Just as a disclaimer, the views expressed today do not reflect the views of New York Trend Media. Guests are free to speak their minds unfiltered and uncensored. We are here as a place of dialogue, no more and no less. All right, good day, Trenders. So we have a great guest for you today, a little bit of a surprise. It is the actual owner of the media company that sponsors this podcast. It's a family-run business, and she is also my mother. So hopefully I don't get into any trouble or we don't bring up any uh, times when I was a kid where I was uh, particularly naughty or bad. Don't want any embarrassing stories being told, but if they do, that's fine anyway. So I'm going to kick it to Dr. Teresa Taylor-Williams to introduce herself. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Justin. I'm well. I am Dr. Teresa Taylor-Williams. I am happy to be on the program today. New York Trend has always been um, a company that offers opportunity, and we have always wanted to have new initiatives, and I'm so proud of this new initiative in the podcast to be able to reach another segment of new listeners and introduce people to New York Trend and what it's all about. I started New York Trend with an idea to bring news unfiltered to the community and to allow members of my community to speak unfiltered, to write their letters, you know, when we used to write letters to the editor, but also to get their story told without it being edited or influenced by other sources of media or political uh, positions that the true voice of the community could be heard. And I believe that after 30 plus years in owning New York Trend solely by myself, publishing by myself, not having a board to influence what I do or to prevent me from doing what I believe is my mission in New York Trend, which is to be a voice for the community, as I said, and for people who feel that they are not heard, do not have the opportunity to get their story out there. And I am proud to be able to say that I am one of a very, very few Black-owned, woman-owned publications in this nation. Well, that's quite an introduction, and I thank you for telling me that. Uh, you know, and our audience surely appreciates that. Obviously, uh, from what you said, that that could be very solitary, that kind of uh, endeavor. And the New York trend, as far as I've always known it, and has, has always been something that has been a point of pride for our family and uh, has been a, a point of pride for the tri-state area and, and beyond. Your paper is in the Smithsonian. Um, you get thousands of people to the website. Uh, my question for you is, um, how did you want to go into the newspaper business? What was the climate like back in 
30 years ago that is different than now? What, 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 give me a sense of your world back then. The world 30 years ago, when I uh, started in the newspaper business, was different in many ways, but also similar in many ways. I got the writing bug when I was in elementary school. I was a quiet child and I was a misunderstood child. And so I took to pen and paper to put my feelings down. I wrote poetry. I wrote short stories. And when I was in junior high school, I wrote a piece about the injustices of slavery and my confusion over the absence of us rising up and organizing and overtaking those who had encaptured us. And my piece was chosen to be in the graduation yearbook. And so I would say at the age of around 14, I realized that I did not like the way things were. And the only way I could express that was by writing and hopefully getting my opinion out because I was so shy and because I did not speak a lot. There were times in my life that I could not even look people in the eye because I had a crippling shyness along with anxiety. And so when I would go into my world of writing, I felt most comfortable and happy because I could create what was I, the thoughts I was thinking about, um, characters, and express myself without anyone telling me I was wrong, and also without the fear of thinking that I was saying something wrong. And with that, a bug, writing bug hitting me in my early teen years, I continued to write. I was an excellent student. I got straight A's. And, but I was still hidden and I, I had to hide because- What high school did you go to? I went to Andrew Jackson High School in Hollis, Queens. And it was a time of transition. When you think back 30 years into our community, uh, our communities were changing. Uh, the introduction of drugs purposefully um, flooding our communities, um, poverty hitting, and violence, and crimes against each other. It was a time where it was very frightening. Uh, it was frightening to be in my high school. There were drugs and killings um, on the grounds. Um, and so I continued to hide and to just be quiet. But in my being quiet and being actually the first person to ever consider having an opportunity to go to college, I missed out on things. I had great parents. They were working class parents. I had a, came from a great household, many generations living together, successfully employed, contributing, and I had a lot of love and caring. But my school situation was the opposite. I found that 
in order to survive. It was better to hide and to just survive. And in doing that, I missed opportunities because the administrators or the counselors um, tended to those students who were most verbal and always going into the college office. I never paid one visit to the college office because I did not think I was worthy of being there. I had my focus so much on making it through the day without getting uh, injured or jumped or stabbed or matches thrown in my hair, um, which were threats that I was under. And I missed the opportunity to do many things in, in my high school years. So when I went to college, I continued to write. Um, and once I graduated and I was working and uh, got married, I picked up writing again. And I found a local newspaper in Queens. It was a historically black newspaper called the New York Voice. And I started volunteering there. And I was able to be with seasoned um, writers. It was an amazing time. It was an exciting time as they covered uh, riots and up upheavals in our community, injustices. And what year is this around? This was around, hmm, this was the 90s. Uh, this was the 90s, uh, a very difficult uh, time uh, mm. for our community. And mm. so I met a, a man there, a, a journalist. He was the editor at the time. His name was James Hicks. And he was the first black uh, reporter to land um, on the ground to cover World War II. He was an amazing individual. Um, he was a mentor to me. Um, he scared me. He was very gruff, but he had a kindness and he had a commitment to our community. And uh, he tutored me on coverage and how to be a good journalist. And so many years later, I graduated from Columbia University with my doctorate. And I thought I would be able to become a professor, uh, work at Columbia University. That did not happen. And I found myself with a doctorate and no job. And so I went back to that newspaper and the Mr. Hicks had passed, but the owner invited me to come and uh, be the executive editor and run that newspaper. And in doing that, I met so many other journalists, but we had complaints because the old press, the old black press were publications that you could hold in your hand, but the ink would come off. They were not very um, aesthetically appealing to the eye. And so we got together and I invited them to join me. So let's try putting our own publication together with a new bent, a little bit more inclusive, more diverse, 
and to be able to look good and compete against the mainstream media. And that's how I started New York Trend. That's amazing. I mean, there's, there's so many, uh, if you think about the early 90s, late 80s, what's happening culturally in the black community, black and brown community, I mean, you have a lot of different uh, cultural events and milestones. Obviously, we have some negative ones like Rodney King uh, beating and 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 uh, trial. Uh, we have the fall of OJ. We also have, on a more positive note, we have burgeoning your new jack new jack swing is in full effect you have yeah. hip hop is is probably in its golden age mm-hmm. um and then also you're you're transitioning from the republican led bush administration with um uh at, to the clinton administration mm-hmm. uh and uh people like sister soldier saying we have the first black president and bill clinton um uh you know they call the 90s the last great decade have you ever heard that term before I've heard that. Um, there are many reasons people would say it was the last great decade. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a decade that, like you say, it had great times and it, it had so many things burgeoning. I think it was a time where we reclaimed uh, soul music in a different sure. form. You know, yeah. New Jack Swing, we had so many... Uh, new groups coming out. I think people started mm. to feel good. Um, I think we moved a little bit away from having such a drug crisis in our mm. major cities, um, mm. getting that under control. Uh, many, many programs and cultural uh, venues are popping up and mm. the encouragement of young Black people and to, and students to be able to dream and mm-hmm. look toward a future. It was almost like coming out of uh, the darkness into yeah. a light. And so um, I think the 90s were a good time. Um, you know, for me, at that point, I had uh, a, a young son who was amazing. I had... Um, Thank in, you. <laughs> in, 19, <laughs> in 1992, um, my family expanded and had now uh, three children, uh, two at the same time, wonderful twin girls. And um, what a surprise. <laughs> what, a, what a surprise. Um, Wall Street was was was, was popping, booming, booming. booming. Back then, yeah. And yeah. Um, my husband was um, a Wall Street maverick and so successful. Mm. And it was a great time for our family. Mm. And I look back on the 90s and say, wow, um, this was an amazing time. Well, I think one of my first memories of the 90s was uh, you and I were in PC Richards. You may not remember this. I think this was, I was very young. It was like 1990, 1991. And um, I had just gotten into watching MTV because I had just gotten a TV in my room and I was able to control the remote uh, for, for the most part. And I saw a band called the Cranberries. Now, the Cranberries music was alternative grunge kind of music, which was very popular coming up at that time. But it really wasn't for a four or five year old. But we went into PC Richards anyway, and I saw their album was out. Actually, it was a cassette back when cassettes were out. 
Then I said, Mommy, can I get the cranberries? And you thought because they were called the cranberries, it was a, it was a kid group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got the album. <laughs> I thought that, that was a good story to tell. But, you know, uh, in terms of being able to tell stories that are in the New York trend that are, and back then and now that connect the black and brown community to issues that are relevant to us, that we may not even be aware are relevant to us, uh, is a daunting task. You have to really be dedicated and you have to really be able to collate a lot of different parts of information together. But, you know, as I say, the 90s is the last great decade. To contextualize that for our listeners, what I mean by that is that the 90s was a time where there was a little bit more innocence or earnestness in terms of our interactions, right? We didn't have internet for most of the decade. We didn't have Facebook and social media. So not everybody had a say in terms of what was going on in culture. You know, now it's like anybody can, guy works at a gas station, can just go on his phone, tweet something, goes viral. Now he's on GMA the next week, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. now, you know, not everybody had a voice back then. So it's important. It was in newspapers were really, really important because they provided the voice for the public in a way that social media kind of does now. Do you think nowadays it's harder because of some of the, the new things that came out in the past two decades to really run a newspaper and get your point across and um, be a representative of the community? Or do you think some of those things have made it easier? Um, well, I'll, I'll say this. You know, I... I love the days of pre-social media as far as uh, owning a newspaper because when I started at um, the first paper, we would get actual letters mailed to the newspaper and we would open them and then we'd have to retype them in. I'm, you know, I got trained during the days of using a Veritiper which I think absolutely no one would know what that is. But a Veritiper, uh, we had a room with the Veritiper typist um, in the press room, and we had a long 18-foot um, board. And the Veritiper would print out wet type of the stories filled with glue. And we would have to, I would go back, sneak back in the press room when I wasn't doing administrative work, And I would watch them put the paper together and I would love joining and doing the hands on part because we would have to take those strips of type and 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 get the glue off with our hands. And then we'd lay the type out and let it dry. And then we would have to read each column of that that type. And if we found mistakes, we'd have to take a razor blade and cut out the letter and replace Mm. it with another letter and then take a roller and roll over it in order to create what you saw in the newspaper, those columns of text. That was a very exciting time. And so when we would have to, um, you know, read the letters from from readers and, and they took the time to have an opinion and send that in, that meant that they were really either impressed or upset or motivated by what they read. And so we got that immediate feedback 
in order to put in the next weekly issue to say, you know, it was called Reader's Voice or Reader's Speak. And when I started New York Trend, I called it open mic, open dialogue, that even if you were criticizing me or something about the paper, it deserved to be in there. And I did not engage in cancel culture and say, I am not going to run this because it's a criticism of me. I think that in the onset of, of social media, people feel like they can just say whatever they say, sometimes in response to something else that someone else has said or to some kind of news event, or they just are feeling something and they can just put it out there. That has a good and a negative effect and result. The good effect is that everyone can have a voice instantly. And if you don't like something, you can speak your mind. If you hear something or there's something politically happening as in our current situation with brutalities against uh, men of color in the, the uh, what happened to Ahmaud Aubrey, what we just saw with Kyle Rittenhouse, if you don't like how something is going, you can say it. And you can find a community where you can express that opinion and feel support. And people are not afraid to have that open dialogue. And it takes the fear away. The negative use of social media, which is what I do not like, is the ability of people saying things that are true and then other people joining in to confirm that untruth whether it's in a political venue, whether it's in taking uh, shots at uh, performers, entertainers, or just everyday people. That is where social media must be restricted and we must be able to have a distinguishing eye and say, I'm not just gonna join in on this conversation and engage in this cancel culture environment that we're in. I have to find an opinion for myself. So it has both negatives and positives. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that leads me to my next question. But before I get to that, I mean, I think this is a response. I think it's, it's so uh, evident uh, that, you know, they blame it on Generation Z. They blame it on millennials. Um, but from what I remember in the 90s, baby boomers and Gen X, were people who uh, could have been prone to the same thing if they had the same opportunities or same tools. Uh, I think, I mean, if you gave a hippie back in 1969 the ability to use Twitter, I think uh, it, it could be a benefit, but I think it could have gotten uh, just as toxic back then as it is now. I just think that, uh, I don't think it's necessarily because of uh, our generation, but I do think, I do think that it's important that people take responsibility and, and still um, uh, make sure they vet what they get on the internet and what they get on the social media. You know, we used to uh -huh. trust reporters. We used to trust the news uh -huh. and the media to vet these things for us. Uh -huh. Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America uh -huh. and he was in the media. And then after that, it shifted to, you know, maybe Tom Brokaw or 
uh, Dan Rather, and then and then others mm-hmm. as it went on. But you know, media was something that you said. You know, what? I can always trust this paper. I know that, mm-hmm. or I, you know, I, I can I can read this, and I these people these people know what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Now you don't you don't really I, I don't know if that still exists. And I think that's a, a a microcosm of everybody being media. Mm-hmm. Everybody is media now, mm-hmm. right? Like the 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 this it. All I have to do is make an account, and now I'm just as powerful as any newspaper in in the nation. So I think that's pretty fascinating. It's yeah. got to be a big change uh, for you to think as you transition to now culturally covering culture, right? Mm-hmm. The trend, the trend has. As, as its namesake and what we do on this podcast is we cover things in culture. Mm-hmm. And what I'm wondering is from maybe when you were, when, when uh, in the heyday of the nineties, mm-hmm. um, do you, do you, do you think, do you think our problems now are f- so much far worse and so much far more divisive than what was going on in the '90s. Or do you think it's just that every generation has its conflict? I think that every generation does have its conflict. Um, I think mm-hmm. that um, it's the differences are how we handle that conflict. Um, I think that we are so lucky to have the technology that we have. Um, You know, if I think back to the days of my frustration of slavery, but I was not fully informed. You know, when I wrote that piece when I was in middle school, I wasn't fully informed because our textbooks were not written to fully inform me. Mm. We got a, uh, just a, interpretation of what the situation was through our teachers and not so much through the written word or something that was absolutely true. And the picture that was painted for me of slavery was that, you know, we just got on a boat in Africa and were kidnapped and brought here to the United States. And then we just gave up and we gave in. And that's how the lessons that I was taught about slavery um, were presented to me. So, of course, it made me angry to think that there was not one slave that tried to pull everybody together and say, let's overtake these white oppressors. There's so many of us and so few of them. Yes, some of us would die, but a lot of us would be saved. But I didn't learn the true stories of slavery until I was in college or an adult, not in middle school, not in elementary school, where I was taught to believe that we were weaker, that Black people, that slaves were weaker than the oppressors. It was not that they were weaker. It was that we didn't speak the same languages. I didn't. I thought that Africa, everybody spoke the same language, or they spoke English. <laughs> That's how ignorant I was because of the methods or the information that I was taught as a child in school. But when I was able to research it for myself and get more educated, I understood 
that just like with different ethnicities here, there were different languages in Africa. And so you put mm-hmm. someone together, <clears throat> excuse me, who doesn't speak that tribal dialogue with someone else who comes from a different tribe, they can't communicate. Mm-hmm. And I did not know about the Underground Railroad. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, people like Sojourner True, Harriet Tubman, until very yes. later in my school years. And so mm. you ask the question of whether or not it's harder now than it was in the 90s or earlier. I think it is harder now. But it's also more, we have more tools to, to help us now to help those people who have been oppressed, who have been abused, who have been incarcerated wrongly. We have initiatives to to look at injustice in our jails and people to Yeah, look at Free Britney. Free Britney is an example of that. Free Britney, um, even the initiative taken on by Kim Kardashian. Um, Sure. And so, and we have the advent of the cell phone with a video camera. And that yeah. cell phone has saved and will save so many lives of people who are in the position to be abused by authority, be abused by partners, um, to have their story not told. If not for videos, um, there are so many people who would not have been able to tell their story. But we have to remember that even with videos, Sometimes we lose and we are still, as a people, victims of injustice and still don't have a full voice to get our stories heard. And that's why New York Trend is there. Yeah. New York Trend has always been on the front lines in in its area to forward these agendas and forward the agenda of progress and freedom and education, I think, is always, I mean, you've been a teacher mm-hmm. for longer than you've been, you've owned a newspaper. Yes. So you you are an educator and, and it's very important to use the paper as a tool to educate people who don't get that opportunity in their high schools or middle schools. Yeah. Well, what do you, what do you, what do you, what, what do you think is the, the key for us to be successful? Did you see the movie, did you see the movie um, One Night in Miami? No, I did not. Okay, so just a little background. Uh, One Night Miami is uh, a fictional tale uh, based off of, I think, an actual meeting. I think they actually did hang out a couple times. Yes, I know the premise, yes. Yeah, so it was, uh, just for our audience, it was Jim Brown, who was just uh, on his way to retiring. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was getting movie deal offers. Uh, Sam Cooke, Mm -hmm. who had just gotten his royalties. For his music, mm-hmm. um, Malcolm X, um, who was just considering leaving the Nation of Islam, mm-hmm. and then Muhammad Ali, who was just now joining the Nation of Islam, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, in some ways because of Malcolm X, and it's a very interesting story that also is a representation of different opinions on how Black people uh, can be successful back then. But mm-hmm. it also applies to now in an environment that perhaps is not what well, we definitely know was not institutionally built for them. 
but also in some ways, in some places, is still uh, uh, energized not to be supportive. So you can argue about whether it's energized to be absolutely antagonistic. Some people will say that, but it's definitely energized to not be supportive, right? And Sam Cooke and Malcolm X, I think, have the, the, the most interesting dialogue because Malcolm X is saying passion, energy, emotion, rally, protest. Mm-hmm. Let's get together. Mm-hmm. Let's separate ourselves. It's it's a very uh, reactionary mode, but it's also a very uh, – it's it's one that's very um, appealing to, to people it, 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 because it's so um, emotionally driven. And Sam mm-hmm. Cooke's opinion is – very different. He says that's not necessary. What's necessary is keep your head down, stay quiet, get your money, right? Mm-hmm. Make the money. Money talks always. Mm-hmm. So do what you have to do to financially improve yourself. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's more variants and opinions for that. But being the wife of a Wall Street uh, power broker, mm-hmm. being a doctor mm-hmm. uh, with a Columbia doctorate yourself, and being someone who's experienced living both in Queens, right, 200 Street, yeah. then moving on to Jamaica, Jamaica Estates, yeah. and then moving on to the absolute suburbs of like Oyster Bay and Locust Valley, and seeing the politics of Black life in all three places. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think it takes to 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 get us successful? That's that's such a, a not that we haven't been successful, but in a, but you know right. in a, in a sense that we're 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 where we want to be, right? Um, that's a huge question. Uh, first of all, we have, you know, every person has their own personal vision of their definition of success, and what will define me as being successful. Um, second, we have visions of success that we see in others that we aspire to and say, if only I could have been, if only I had this opportunity, I could be where they are. Thinking that where they are is a Mecca, is, you know, the best life you could live. Um, people size me up. You know, uh, you're a doctor, uh, you went to the Ivy League, um, you live in a affluent area, you drive this car, but you're making an assumption. You're making an assumption by looking at what you see on the outside, because no matter what level of success we achieve within your own definition of that level of success, you don't know the story of how they got there and how mm. they're staying there and what their battle mm. is to hold on to be there and what they're still enduring to to survive in that level of success. And so when you talk about that movie and you, you hear someone like Sam Cooke, an entertainer, saying, just keep your head down, do your thing, make the money because money is power. But then a different opinion saying, rise up, be visible, protest, tell people what you're thinking, what's on your mind. That really is, that movie, as you describe it, is really a 
explanation, an example of the challenges that successful people of color face every single day. Every single day. Every day we face a challenge to speak up and say what's on our mind, whether it's telling our superior at work or somebody ringing us up at the grocery store or a teacher mistreating our children. Every day we have to make a decision whether to use that voice or to keep our head down, say, let this pass because there's a bigger challenge ahead. And so I think that's the, the uh, dichotomy that, that people of color live with. Whether you are affluent in the suburbs or you're middle class in Manhattan or the outer boroughs, or you're struggling and trying to make ends meet wherever you live. You face those, we all face the same question. That's what connects us. But you know the, 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 the tragedy in that? You, you know the heartbreak in that? The heartbreak in that is that we don't recognize that we are all really facing the same challenges, facing the same dangers, mm -hmm. facing the same decisions to either mm -hmm. be vocal and, and be, uh, you know, dominant in our feelings and expressive without mm -hmm. fear or suffering the consequences for either doing it or not doing it. And if we could just see ourselves across the economic spectrum, across the demographic spectrum, and look at ourselves as people of color with one agenda, because we're all really searching for the same thing. Yeah. Equal treatment, equal mm -hmm. opportunity, mm -hmm. justice, fairness, and to be able mm -hmm. to live a good life. Yeah. Uh, you know, James Baldwin used to talk about how uh, in The Fire Next Time, his book, um, how he could walk into a place and he could feel he could feel his skin, you know, he could feel his color mm -hmm. on his face. Yeah. And I think that's an in, that's an insecurity that no matter how much money you make, no matter where you go, you, you could feel that whether you're you're living in Queens, going to yeah. Andrew Jackson or whether you're living in Oyster Bay, going to Friends Academy. You know, you you know, when it's just when 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 race is such a factor, uh, it, it really it, it can really, really mess with your self of a self self of sense of self yeah uh and i think you know i don't I, I think it's a little bit you know i purposely asked a reductionist question i don't think that um there's one philosophy that that uh -huh. is really the philosophy for any people uh -huh. um particularly black and brown people uh -huh. but i do think that it's just interesting to pick your brain because i i you know the your story starts with a family that is while not wealthy is working hard and and connected and in a collective you know you're a clan i think i think sometimes we get embarrassed by that some people get embarrassed by that that you know oh my whole family yeah, we all live in one house you know everybody's under the same roof you know when mo when multiple gener generations are living together not only do you get the influence of people that came before you and their stories and their their soul and their uh, uh, 
their skills, skill set, right? That gets transferred. It's also the family quality, right? Every family, there's something unique that puts you in the place that you're in. You know, some people say like, oh, my family has these great special recipes or my family has these great special traditions. And I think that what is uh, being lost in younger generations in all stratospheres of society is that we 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 don't um do that anymore immigrants do that immigrants come to, over here and they you know there's different generations in a household so they're getting that experience they're getting that benefit but i think that what has 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 been so influential about your story growing up hearing about it is that you know you could walk right upstairs and see your uh, grandmother who used to sing at the cotton club and um used to sing with uh not lena horn but uh who, who else cab calloway who'd you sing cab calloway and all of them cab yeah calloway. so you know and lena, horn. lena horn yeah or you can go upstairs and you could talk to someone who you know was a sharecropper in alabama you know and you you get that sense it humbles you it's definitely humbled me knowing those stories Growing up, because from for me, you know, growing up in Long Island, uh, going to all white schools, being in mostly all white environments, I got tested, and I got tested by white kids and black kids alike. You know, black kids who were there on scholarship, who were from maybe uh, all black neighborhoods, would test me and say, you know, I'm not black enough. Or white kids would would, would initiate the whole thing. A rich white person was more apt to say, I'm not black than even uh, a black person at that time. So it really forged me in a way to really find my own identity. And one of my identities has always been the paper. I've always said, well, they can say whatever they want, but of course I care about black issues. Of course I, I identify as a, a proud black person right. because look at my history. Look, mm-hmm. look at what my mom has done. Mm-hmm. Look at what my dad does every day when he goes mm-hmm. into Wall Street and they're calling him a coon coffer, mm-hmm. right? But yet he still goes there and he does whatever he can to make money for his family, you know, and be, and be mm-hmm. at the top. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as light as he was, he could pass. And mm-hmm. still he, he confronted, uh, the albatross of racism. You know, I, I think about my sisters and trying to leave a legacy for my sisters at my high school, you know, with mm-hmm. athletics and academics and things like that. And what I just wish, I wish what we could do is we could, we could instill uh, within the entire community, the the notion of uh, let's stop being crabs in a barrel. Let's 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 stop saying these black people up top they're all bougie. They don't care. You know they're all white people now. And the other people, mm-hmm. other way, those people that are in um, Queens or Hempstead or Uniondale, those people low lives. They'll never achieve anything. That they, they don't work hard. Culture of poverty, all that stuff. And neither mm-hmm. dynamic is true. Right. And right. we are the only community. We are the only community uh, that really has such a, a, a toxic dynamic between blacks of different socioeconomic standings. I mean, you could see this in Jack and Jill. You could see this in the links. Right. Uh, you don't see this within the Jewish community. Jewish people that don't have money don't rail against Jewish people that do have money and vice versa. Right. Oh. They go to the same synagogue. They come together. 
and 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 they they unify with within their collective. White people are way past this. If it used to happen to white people, it doesn't happen anymore, right? <laughs> so, uh, well, you, you know, maybe I'm ranting. Yeah, can, continue. No, well, a couple of uh, points that you make. Um, number one, to the generational living. Um, you know, there is a, a historically black movie, a classic called Raisin in the Sun. And in A Raisin in the Sun, um, we, and, and you and I saw that once again on Broadway with Felicia Rashad and um, Diddy. Mm-hmm. Um, it told the story of the, the desire to move up, you know, to move away from the neighborhood they were in and uh, paying rent and, and some of the ills of, of being in a quote unquote um, a ghetto area was to mm-hmm. the signs of success were to be able to move to that um, pie in the sky, you know, the, the suburbs. And it showed the generational support um, of the grandmother and then her daughter and son-in-law and how they were going to come together. And, and the sister mm-hmm. of, of uh, the, the wife all coming together and they were going to piece their money together to be able to buy this property. And where's the property? It's in the white neighborhood. And, yeah. and that was uh, a wonderful movie to tell the story of, you know, the, the hopes and desires and dreams and, and for the little boy to say that he'll have better schooling. And all of those things were true. And we need to face that, that yes, the opportunity for a better education for that little child, the opportunity to have safe living, um, that was the reality. And that their desire to come together and bring all of their paychecks together in order to get this home was an example of uh, their tenacity, of the love for each other, for having goals, for wanting to have a better life, and for wanting to educate the next generation in the best way that they could. And so when we come together and we live together, somehow it has been labeled as a negative that, you know, oh, well, you can't afford your own apartment. You can't afford to live on your own. Look at all those people living in one house. And for some reason, for some reason, for our our culture, uh, we are um, criticized for living together. And I am a perfect example of generations like that movie and a raisin in the sun coming together and, and pooling their resources together and supporting each other. So my family decided to leave Astoria where I was born and to move out into Queens, which was look at that as the Mecca, you know, great homes, great community, um, it, and it was still predominantly white. And it was three generations. It was my mom and dad starting off with an infant, which was me, and my grandmother and grandfather. And my grandfather uh, worked for Con Edison and had a stable job. My great-grandmother, great-grandfather, my great-grandfather was a former red cap, and he was retired. My great-grandmother was a former maid for a white colonel who did very well. 
and my mother's sister, who worked at a Berg, um, Arnold Constable, which was a very affluent store. And all of them came together to buy this wonderful home. We didn't cram into one bedroom. There were three floors and everyone was comfortable. And it allowed my mom and dad to continue to work because they had my grandmother and grandfather taking care of me. That's what it's all about. But we get now um, ridiculed or we look, look down on because there's generational living in black families. You know, mm. because I had such a trying and disturbing experience every day in school, when I came home, it was the complete opposite. It allowed me to hold on to my mental sanity because I had so many people taking care of me. And making sure I was okay. They could not control what was happening to the schools. You know, the lack of funding to schools in, in uh, changing areas. Yes. Um, mistreatment. Uh, discrimination. They couldn't do anything. And the busing changes. The busing changes of the 70s, too. The busing changes. You know, my brother and sister were able to have the benefit of being bussed out of what had now become a very challenging community. And, yeah. I, but I had to stay because busing was not initiated for my, my generation. Um, but that love and support of having those three generations there in the household literally saved me and made me who I am today because I can, when I'm down, when I'm faltering, when I'm afraid, I draw on that. And then you talk about the assumptions that are made, that if you live in Hempstead or you live in Brooklyn or if you live in Freeport or you live in the Bronx, that somehow you're less than. You're less than those living in a White Plains or a person of color living in Connecticut or living on the North Shore. Those are the assumptions that are made, and they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. But the other point you make is, how we feel about each other, even within our own communities, even within our own groups that are supposed to be supportive of us and, and have certain tenets that they ascribe to that are true and real. That's the crisis that within our own, we hurt each other and we don't yeah. support each other and we're jealous mm -hmm. of each other. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that bother me the most. I don't care where you live. I don't care mm -hmm. what community you come from. You are still hardworking, affluent individuals or people with goals, with dreams to do better. Mm -hmm. And those of us that have done better are supposed to put a hand out to help those that have not been as successful be more successful. That, mm -hmm. Those two things are our failings. We have that yeah. still, quote, unquote, crab in a barrel mentality. Right. We and I guess in, in a very Sam Cooke way, what we and, and and, you know, dad would probably say the same thing is, you know, you got to you got to pull your resources together. If you the best type of vengeance is just buying them out. It's buying right? them out. It, but, but you know what, Justin, first, we have to trust each other. We yeah. have to truly like each other. 
yeah. and, and, and have a commitment to support each other. And, and not to say that I, I'm perfection, but for many years, for 20 years, I ran an internship program for aspiring journalists and, and photographers. New York Trend was built on, on interns, on me not being able to hire as many staff as I could. But I, I went and I reached out to all of the local universities, all of the universities and colleges in New York State. And I'm proud to say that I have interns who write me back and say, you gave me my first shot. You allowed me Mm -hmm. to put something in your newspaper that no one else might have not done. I have Mm -hmm. people who have come through the doors of New York Trend that are exceptional journalists that have done extremely well and have had great careers and continue to have great careers in all venues, in TV, in radio, um, in print. And it's because I opened the doors and I said, just come on in. This is a place for you. That's what we need from us. An open door to say, come on in. This is a place for you. Whether it's a community group, whether it's a group of women under the auspices of being sisters and friends, whether it's an organization that says, let's bring our children together to be stronger and recognize their color. Those are our failings, is that we want to look like we're doing, but we're not. Right. So wise. <laughs> you must have a smart son. You get that, uh, I that wisdom. I have a very from. smart son. I have children. <laughs> um, With a lot of but, um you know uh yeah mentorship i mean i i wouldn't yeah. be where I, where i am or yeah. where i'm trying to go without mentorship mm-hmm. i think that's the biggest thing we got to do to 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 um to just continue to it or you always want to improve and you you there's always opportunity to improve and it's it's not about the obstacle all the time sometimes it's about how you react to the obstacle. Absolutely. Right? It's it's always it's sometimes it's even if you're not successful in working together, working together makes you successful. Exactly. Uh, you know, so but my last question for you mm-hmm. is where where do you see yourself now? Uh it's 2021 about to be 2022. What's on the horizon for you? You've you've had a paper for 30 years, you've been a teacher, you're a doctor, you have your own private practice. Where do you see yourself in the next couple of years? What do you see yourself doing? What do you see the trend evolving? Or uh, are there other projects that you you look forward to? Um, good question. I, I, I want to go back to a statement that you made um, about uh, levels of success. And, you know, that I, I graduated Columbia. I have a doctorate. I, I started a newspaper. I own a newspaper for 30 plus years. Um, I've been an educator for just as long. Um, I'm a professor, an entrepreneur, um, a mom. Uh, I'm a writer. Where do I go from here? I'm also now um, a frequent uh, commentator on Good Morning America. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm an advocate for mental health. 
I'm an advocate for children. I think my, my project that I'm expanding now is my work with social and emotional health, wellness, mm-hmm. and learning. I mm-hmm. have a consultant business where I am hired to come in and evaluate uh, the social emotional learning program, um, make suggestions, enhance it, start initiatives, work with the administrators and teachers, students, parents uh, to attend to the social emotional health and learning and wellness of the community, schools. It's a mandate from New York State that every school district have a SEL program. And I'm so happy about that. And that's what I'm excited about now is that everything that I've done has come together as far as my academic career to bring me to a point where what my work is respected. Um, my name is respected. That uh, when people talk about mental health and wellness, um, I'm called on TV to speak as an expert. And I'm called to schools to be an expert in social emotional learning and wellness. I think that I'm in, I'm heading toward the days of uh, looking at all of my years of struggle and, and, and preparation and experience being recognized and, and not recognized to give me accolades, but recognized to give me a voice and respect. I think, Justin, if I look at the next years of my life, is that I want respect and I want to be respected for all that I've done, for all that I have accomplished, but not to get an award, but to be able to have a voice at the table to mm-hmm. help those who cannot help themselves, whether that's mm-hmm. children, whether it's parents who feel that they don't have the power, whether it's people suffering from mental health issues, who don't know where to go, who don't have support. I think for the rest of my days, I want to be an advocate. I want to continue to empower people. I want to be a voice on so many important topics. Um, And I want to be able to write And go back to that little girl in the room who found her power in the pen. And I had a mentor Mm. who said to me, stop crying, Teresa. Stop telling me how hurt you are. Stop telling me how mistreated you are. Stop telling me about all of your injustices. Write it because there's power in the pen. And I, so I hope that I see the great successes that my children are working towards. I hope that I am still viable in the areas that I have a specialty in. And I hope that I am able to live to see the results of that. Well, I think that's that's uh, obviously really. I mean, 
You know, I, I, I think that with everything that uh, you've said today about your your origin story and then obviously where you want to go and things like that, I think you'll obviously be successful. Uh, you know, the, the world tends to bend towards people who just will not accept no for an answer. Uh, so, you know, that's obviously you to and, a T. <laughs> can I add that in too? <laughs> what? Yes. My philosophy, never take a no. If you block me at A, I'm going to go to B. You block me at B, I'm going to go to C. And that's what I tell young people also. Never just have a plan A. Have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. Great words, great advice. And I think that what we can learn from Dr. Williams is so much but for any of you out there, no matter how old you are, uh, whether you are um, you know, a baby boomer or uh, older or whether you are a Gen Zer, if you're out there feeling like you're ostracized, you don't fit in, you're a misfit, it's okay. Because a lot of people feel that way right now, have felt that way. And some of the best art, some of the best music, some of the best writing, some of the best political policy, some of the best of everything, comes from people who were wallflowers, people who were not in the mainstream, people who had a lot of pain growing up. And you can always turn that into beauty, and I think that's a great lesson. So with that, I want to say thank you to my guest this week, this episode, Dr. Teresa Taylor-Williams. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, Love you, Mom. And um, uh, for my audience, I want to say again, remember, we are available wherever podcasts are found. Please like, share, and subscribe. Comment, email me. That'd be great, too. I'd love to talk to you and see what you guys are up to. We're also on Instagram. And Trenders, we will be back. This is season one. Season one is ending. This is actually going to be the last episode of season one, so the season finale. But we will be back for season two in January. Uh, Last two weeks of January, we will be posting on new episodes. And we'll continue into 2022 and then roll into 2023 and just keep going. So for me here at the Trend Podcast, I want to say thank you for this first year of listening. It's been an honor to bring this content to you. I want to say I'm so grateful for all the people who listen and tune in, uh, whether it's once or whether it's every week. uh, I'm sorry, every month. And have a great holiday season. And we will see you in January. Thank you so much. And remember, we're better when we trend together.